Good morning, brothers and sisters. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's an honor to come and preach the word to you that the Lord does give me a spiritual salary, and that is the blessing to be able to speak his words, whether when I read them or what I've researched and been able to get from other brothers and sisters that have uh, perused the scriptures, that have gained such knowledge and such wisdom. So I do get a spiritual salary, and that is the blessing from God. And I encourage everyone, when you preach the word, the gospel, to others, whether family, friends, co-workers, or something, the Lord does bless that, because it is His truths, it is His revelation that is being spoken. And you will also, in a sense, get a spiritual salary that is a blessing from God, apart from all the blessings that He continues to give us, the mercy and the love that He shows. Just a little quick touch on that as I, that came to mind as He said that we do not take a salary, yes, that is very true, but we do gain so much from the Lord as we exposit His Word. So we're going to continue in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 10. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are going to start in verse 4 and finish in verse 9, so we can get a little context. So the Word of God through the writings of Paul states, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray to the Lord to consecrate this time. Dear precious, amazing, merciful, and loving God, with the blessings that you continue to give us, with the wisdom and the knowledge that you continue to instruct us through your scriptures, we are ultimately grateful and seeking your wisdom and your knowledge once again at this time. May you be glorified, may you be worshipped, may you be adored for this time of the exposition of your word. And may we gain your wisdom, your knowledge, and humility to be able to apply these things to our lives and to be able to teach others when the situation arises. So all these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So as in the last uh, two verses where it's speaking about the word, I have titled this sermon, The Word is Near You, Believe and Confess It. When the word is given to us through the scriptures and through others, right, audibly when we hear it, 
We are called to believe it. We are called to confess it. And by extension, we are called to obey it. Now, we are called to obey it because the law of God, the scriptures of God, is the moral standard that we are to live by. It is the moral character of God that is being revealed to us and saying, this is perfection. Obey it. But it doesn't tell you to obey it perfectly. Why? Because you can't do it. And we've gone through this. This is The book of Romans consistently tells you, you are not saved by works, you are saved by faith. By grace, through faith. So, real quick to get the context of what we're going to be reading about, we have to go back to verse 4. As it states, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everybody who believes, or everyone who believes. That word end, as was also exposited by our pastor, is the culmination, the purpose. The end, in the sense of that, this has been done for you. That's why I actually said, Christ is the end game of the law. What does end game mean? End game is such a word that we use today, especially because it was used for one of the Avengers movies. But the point of that word is an end game is the very last part of a strategic game like chess. So if you've ever played chess and you're at the end where you know you're going to win it, this is the end game. The last few moves you make in your chess game are your end game. This is the finale. This is what it culminates. This is where it is done. So what does this verse mean? It is summed up in these two points. Christ is the goal and purpose of the law. And Christ terminates any pursuit of the law in order to establish your own righteousness by it. Jesus Christ did it for you. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it for my kids. I can't do it for my spouse. I can't do it for anybody, including myself. Only Christ can do it. So that's why then Paul gets into this point. Because remember, he's been dealing with Judaizers. What are the Judaizers? The Judaizers are those that believe that you also have to follow certain laws to be saved. One of them was circumcision. And some of them were even dietary laws. And they probably even added more that we don't even see in Scripture. Because that's the way that we are as humans. We like to add to things. So Paul states in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now on the surface level, you see that and it says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Well, Peak and James, didn't you just say that we are called to obey? So in a sense, we are called to live by them? Yes. Yes, we are. But what... People don't understand. And this is what we continue to reiterate here. You can only have good works, and we're talking about good works from the eyes of God, if they're done from the Holy Spirit to glorify God first and foremost. So when we look at the world and we see people that do good works by our eyes, 
are they doing it for the glory of God? Not if they're not Christians. Now, that doesn't mean or that doesn't suggest that we should say, ah, oh, well, they shouldn't even do those because what's the point? No, because the scriptures also says that we are to live by them and we are to teach the nations to live by them. It doesn't say that they have to be Christians for them to also be doing these good works. We are called to do that. Case in point, when we tell people, you shall not murder, <laughs> that applies to everybody. That doesn't just apply to Christians. That doesn't just apply to Jews. That applies to the nations. That applies to everybody. So if somebody were to say, well, your scriptures say that homosexuality is wrong, but I don't agree with you. I said, well, by what standard do you say that? Because if you believe that murder is wrong, by what standard are you getting that from? You have to be consistent. And what are we seeing in this world today? The consistency of the secular world is, well, actually, nothing is wrong. We're just bags of dust, of stardust, of particles. We're just bags of water, right? Aren't we like 60, 70% water? There is no purpose to life. We should do whatever we want. We should just enjoy what we like to do. That's not what the scriptures say. Because we do have a standard, and we have a perfect standard. Can we follow it perfectly? No, we can't. That's why Christ had to die on the cross for us. So when we read this, and, and, and Paul is stating that Moses is writing about righteousness that is based on the law. Now he has shifted to becoming righteous by following the law. Again, the difference is righteousness that is attained by Christ and given to us, and then righteousness that, let's say, we would do on our own and obtain, which is impossible. So let's go to what he has cited, right? It says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's citing from Leviticus 18.5, but we're going to read the first five verses of chapter 18. States, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do according to what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to do my judgments and keep my statutes to walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. So what are we seeing here? God is speaking to his people, the sons of Israel, as it states in verse 1. Well, actually, he's speaking to Moses to tell the sons of Israel, so by extension. And he's telling them, don't do what the Egyptians did. Don't do what the people that are in the land right now are doing. Do what I tell you to do. So, is it wrong to live by the commandments and statutes of God for he has told us to obey them? No, it's not. The question is, are you doing it to make yourself righteous and tell God, see, I'm righteous on my own because I follow your law. 
That is what we call pride. You cannot do it. You cannot do it perfectly. But if you're a Christian already saved, can you live by God's statutes and commandments? Yes, you can. Again, not perfectly, but you can. And God says, so in verse 5, again, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. Anywhere here do you see where God is telling them, if you live by these, you will be saved. You will enter heaven. You don't need anybody to do these for you. I know you can do them perfectly. That would be something that you're adding into the scriptures. So what is Paul saying? These Judaizers are bringing up this verse and saying, see, God says you can live by them, that we can do them. And Paul is telling them, yeah, if you're saved, if you're righteous by faith, not by the law. So the righteousness by law that they are using to justify that God revealed to Israel is the way to righteousness, they can't do it. That's not how it is. All biblical history and evidence points to no one being able to accomplish this on their own. No one in the scriptures has done it on their own who is not Christ, who is not God. Now, as a corporate body, that's the sons of Israel, as them being a type of Adam, and ultimately a type of Christ that Christ fulfills, Israel was presented this covenant of works. In other words, they were presented this thing as a corporate body. You are to live by these. When you don't fulfill these, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to desolate you. The land is going to be empty, and you're going to be slaves, you're going to be destroyed, and so forth. They were still saved by grace through faith. Doesn't it say that Abraham was righteous because of his faith? We don't have two different gospels, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. We are all saved by grace through faith in the works of Christ, whether we were expecting it in the future or now we're looking at it in the past. That is the difference. So again, I ask the question, is righteousness, righteousness by faith unattainable? Obviously, the scriptures tell us you can't attain righteousness on your own. It has to be by faith in Christ, correct? So listen to these words, right, as we read them earlier. Verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And here Paul says, that is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So what are we seeing here? 
the word that is near you is the word of faith. That is what we preach. That is what we confess. That is what we say, who we are. And that is near us. It is with us, as I say, in our heart, in our mouth. But why does Paul state, who will ascend into heaven? Who will descend into the abyss? Have you ever, guys ever read this and going, what, what is he saying? I know, I, I myself, I've read this like, I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. But actually, he is citing, again, the Old Testament. This is why it's important to read what the Old Testament says. So let's go to Deuteronomy 10, uh, 30, sorry, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. States, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? that we may hear it and do it. Notice those words. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. <laughs> Does that clear it up for you? No, well, does it really? It's a little tough still. I had to reread it over and over again and tell myself, okay, what is this really saying? First of all, context matters, right? That's why we need to go first real quick to Deuteronomy, same chapter, but verse 6. states, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So what is the prerequisite to do these commandments and these statutes? You must be circumcised in your heart. That's the equivalent in the New Testament of being baptized in your heart. You have been regenerated. You are spiritually alive now. You are a new creation that now says, my disposition is not to glorify myself, although it comes up from time to time. My disposition is to glorify God. What does God say? What does his scripture say? Do you ever think to yourself, you know what? The scriptures say this, but you know what, it's, I, I, I can't do that right now, so I'm going to just do this real quick and then get that out of the way and then I can actually now follow God completely. I know I've done that before. That is erroneous thinking. Let me tell you why. Are we called to disobey God once so that we could obey God the majority of the time? When have you seen that in Scripture? We're called to always obey God. And what, does it, what happens when we obey God? Our lives sometimes get even more complicated, harder. You know what I've noticed in my life? I am going a little off topic. But I have to because it came to my mind. 
what I've noticed in my life is that there are times where I'm presented with sometimes more than one, but sometimes two options. Both options are not sinful. But both options don't necessarily, one of the options doesn't necessarily glorify God as opposed to the other. So let me give you an example. Is it wrong? And this is an example. Is it wrong to drink alcohol? No. And, and we even spoke about a little bit in the Sunday school. It's, it's not wrong to drink alcohol. The scriptures talk about it all the time. What it states is that getting drunk is wrong. That is against the law of God. But if you're presented the situation where there is this person there who has an issue with alcohol, should I drink alcohol in front of them even though it's not a sin for me? Or should I abstain from it and teach them that the, what is called in the word of God is not to drink, to get drunk, but also sometimes to be loving to your brother who is dealing with that weakness. See, those are two options that sometimes you can look at it and say, none of them, none of them are sinful, but which glorifies God the most? What I see in scripture is glorify God with your decisions. What is presented to me sometimes even at home is I get lazy, I'm in bed already, and I'm like, you know what, I forgot to pray with my son. Uh, I'm just going to tell him to pray on his own. I've done that before. I've told him to pray on his own. I talk to him the next day. Hey, did you pray last night? Oh, you know what, I fell asleep, I forgot. Who messed up? Who messed, I mean, honestly, who messed up? I did. I'm responsible for that. Did I really sin in telling him uh, in telling him you pray on your own? No. But I screwed up there. I should have taken the initiative knowing that he could fall asleep. Does that not happen to me where I've fallen asleep? I've fallen asleep praying. I've fallen asleep reading the scriptures. That happens all the time. Which one glorifies God most? That I told him to do it? but he didn't do it, or that I went with him and I made sure that we did it together. Which one glorifies God more? That's the example that I'm trying to show is that, yes, both are not technically sinful, but one glorifies God more than the other. So getting back to this, I don't even know how I moved on to that, but the point is, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down. No, I put these verses side by side from Romans and from Deuteronomy. First, from Romans, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, is equivalent to who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. So what is Paul really saying there? That we ourselves are taking Christ from his throne and bringing him down to us. Keep that in mind. That's what Paul is saying, that we are taking Christ and bringing him down. Again, from Romans, who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? That is equivalent to who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Again, who's going to go 
and grab it. The sea in the Old Testament usually was speaking about either the Gentiles or it was talking about wickedness, the evil. So Paul here gives us the commentary in saying the abyss. Going down and bringing Christ up from the dead. Who does that? We don't do that. We don't do these things and bring it to us. What do we find? Both in scripture and even in our own experience. The word of God, the gospel comes to us. This is what he's trying to tell them. You are not righteous by the law. In other words, by you doing them because you don't go and do these things. It comes to you. And again, what is equivalent from Deuteronomy, first in Romans, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Is equivalent in Deuteronomy. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The word is near you. The word came to you. And if the word is in your mouth and in your heart, if you're confessing it and you truly believe it, that is not a work of your own. That's why you can do it. And that's why then he comes and he tells you in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so right, the word is near you in your mouth, is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, so that the word is near in your heart, you will be saved. So there's a lot just in that verse. And I'm going to extrapolate just a few things. First of all, notice how he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, if he is king, if he is God, where is he? And where is he from? He's from heaven. So when you're confessing that Jesus is Lord, he's in heaven, there is no need to bring Christ down. He himself came down and humbled himself for us. And then he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Isn't that the same thing as, as Paul said, to bring Christ up from the dead? Who did that? God did that. We didn't do that. And it says, you will be saved. We have spoken previously that when it says you will be saved in the future, it's talking about judgment day. But when you are guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, you are already saved. Are God's, are God's promises and guarantees going to happen? Nobody can stop that. God has made a promise and a guarantee. It is going to happen just as much as if I looked back and said, oh, that happened. It's the same thing. It's going to happen. There is no stopping it. So you will be saved in the future, but you are saved now because nobody can pluck you from his hand. And what do we see here? There are two big, big parts of the essentials of God. That Jesus is Lord and the resurrection of Christ. 
We cannot deny those. If somebody denies one of those, and there is a few more, but here these are two specifics in the essentials of God. When the, any of these two are denied, they are not saved or they're in big time error and need to be corrected. So, let's get to our application for daily practice. There is no other name under heaven. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The whole theme of the book of Romans, the majority theme, obviously there's little themes here and there, is we do not attain righteousness by our own works. We attain them by Christ's works. So there is no other name but Christ's name who we can become righteous by. That reminds me of the song, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. That's all we have when it comes to salvation. That is all we have. There is no other way. Number two, searching is earthly, receiving is heavenly. I've I put it like that because in this world, there are times where we are searching for the truth. We are searching, well, what is, what is, is God, the Christian God, the right God? We go to church. We sometimes even go and look at other religions and this and that. We are searching, right? Or we have people that come in and says, you know, we're, we're seeking, we're seeking God. We're seeking God. And then what happens? That emotional drive goes away. That need that they, they really needed at the time goes away. And come to find out, they weren't searching for God. They were searching for self-gratifying or some need that, they, that, that was really uh, needed at that time. Like I grew up in the church. And there would be times where people would come and they'd be like, oh, I lost my home. My marriage is in disarray. My kids hate me. I lost my job. I have a disease. I have cancer, whatever. They're, I want to come to church. I want to see God. I want you guys to pray for me, this and that. So they become part of the church. They start, you know, getting involved, serving, so forth. And then what happens? Their life gets better. Their family comes back. Their marriage isn't in disarray anymore. Maybe their cancer's in remission, whatever it may be. Next thing you know, hey, what happened to brother so-and-so? What happened to sister in the family? Oh, they stopped coming to church. Why? You ever ask yourself that question? Don't we see people seeking all the time? Don't we have seeker-friendly churches? What happens? What does the scripture say? If you're truly searching, you've already been found. And if you're seeking and searching and you don't persevere, you were never searching the truth to begin with. That's why receiving the righteousness of God by grace through faith comes from heaven. Christ came down from heaven. 
humbled himself and gave us his righteousness to his elect, to his people, to his chosen. So that also means don't expect people to search for God. We, as ambassadors of Christ, must bring it to them. And the last point, Jesus is Lord, you are his slave. Does that resonate in your heart and in your mind? Do you ever look at the scriptures and say, this is, this is too much? Once we were slaves of sin, and we couldn't even stop ourselves. And to be honest, we loved it. Some of us really loved it. Now we are slaves of Christ. We love Christ. We want to do his commandments. We want to obey him because we love him. That is the lordship of Christ. If you reject Christ's lordship, you reject Christ. There's a reason why it says Jesus is Lord. It doesn't say Jesus is a Lord or some Lord or something else. In the context of master and slave, he is our Lord. We are his slaves, bond servants. We do what he says. His scripture says, we were just talking about this with some of the men. The scriptures say to bring up your children in the ways of the Lord. When you get up, when you lay down, when you do this, when you do that. If you are not bringing your kids to the Lord, you're not teaching them, you're not sitting down with them and reading the scriptures, you're not praying with them, if you're just letting them do it supposedly on your own, like that example that I gave you, you are not doing what God has told you to do or God has told me to do. We are called to be his slaves and do what his scriptures say. And let me tell you, the blessings that we will receive from being his slaves and him being our Lord are blessings that we cannot even fathom. We cannot even truly understand until we are in heaven, face to face, the beatific vision and we are worshiping him from it for eternity, forever and ever and ever. So, let's go forth this week, today, this week, for the rest of our lives, obeying Christ. Because he obeyed the Father, humbled himself, brought himself to us, and has made the word in our mouths and in our hearts that we confess and we believe. Let's pray. Dear precious, merciful God, your word continues to teach us day by day, word by word, that there is no other name under heaven for who we are saved by and through. We are grateful, Lord. We know ourselves. 
And those that deny it are in serious denial that we cannot keep your commandments perfectly. When we were not saved, our last thought was to glorify you. It was either to gratify ourselves, gratify family members, gratify our kids, our spouse, whatever it may be, instead of glorifying you. But you have changed us. You have removed that enslavement of sin and have brought us to you to be your slaves and what glorious slaves it is to be. Because it is the truth, it is the beauty, it is the preciousness of Christ. May we be humbled this week and continue forth to love you, express our love through what we confess, what we believe, what we teach those around us, and how we deal with our neighbors. So for all these things, Lord, we put these things in your hands, these petitions, to continue to transform us. And we do this in the name that is no other name under heaven. The name of Jesus Christ always. Amen.